Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. It's time to give a shout out to our newest Patreon subscribers. Now, this name is a tricky one for my Australian accent. I heard someone say that today that the Australian accent is so bad because it basically evolved from drunk convicts. So my apologies if I mess it up, but it's in the heritage. This is a French name, I believe. We've got Gel. Medima. Thank you for your support and also to Victoria Bradshaw. Thank you for your support. Your monthly subscriptions make my job here so much easier and I'm so very, very grateful. In this episode, I speak with Ginger Gaffney. Ginger is a horse trainer and author. She wrote an amazing book called Half Broke. It was actually Paul Sorter from Equisec uh, who recommended this book to me. So big thanks to Paul because I hadn't heard of it before and oh my God, I'm so glad I did. I bought it on Audible and I listened to it and then I listened to it again. For those who know my background in years gone by in equine assisted counselling, this book is such a gem about the horse-human relationship and one of my other parts of my uh, previous life one would say is that I used to volunteer in a drug and alcohol rehab center so I have a lot of time um, for people who are doing it tough and who need support and I'm like a fish to water with these people I adore them and I love working with them and supporting them so this book was just right up my alley this book is the true story of Ginger's work on an alternative to prison ranch where she gets a phone call from residents who are part of the equine program there, uh, or the horse team really, 
and they have horses that are dangerous and aggressive to the point of physical harm to the humans feeding them. They don't know what to feed horses. Basically, when this ranch was bought, it had horses on it and um, there were no horse people there to figure it out. Um, and Ginger heads out there and she helps out. And the book tells the story of the residents and the horses that Ginger helps and how they grow and change together. And it's beautifully wound in with the storytelling of Ginger's own story from her childhood. And as happens so many times when working with horses and humans in this way, it's beautiful to see them all evolve and grow and some fail and some make it and some don't. But it's also that Ginger found that she needed um, to be here, to be on this ranch and helping people just as much as they needed her. And it's a beautiful thing when she realises this. And I just love um, her vulnerability and her openness in writing this book. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of work and I loved it. She does not get paid for the work she does at this ranch either. She does it purely um, because she knows it's something she just needs to do. I loved this book, as is obvious by what I've said and said before. Um, please read it. Um, please listen to it on Audible if you like me and love consuming your books in that way. It really shows just how powerful the horse-human relationship is. I believe and have always believed it's one of the most powerful and beautiful things on the planet. It's just an extraordinary thing that the horses are here to teach us. And reading this book shows me or listening to this book shows me that I may just be right. Ginger is a pleasure to speak with. I was so happy to find out more about some of the people in the book, where they are now, did they make it or not. Um, Ginger still helps out at the ranch now uh, when she can get there. Due to COVID, it's been quite difficult, even though she lives very close, there's restrictions. Um, and I will be keeping an eye, an eye out for Ginger's next book. She's actually working on it now and she talks about that in the podcast too. So for now, you can actually head straight to the show notes while you're listening and click on those links and order this book as you listen to the wonderful Ginger Gaffney. And then you can read the book and then you can come back and listen to the podcast again when we talk more about these amazing people. This is a podcast that you'll need to revisit once you've read the book. But for now, just enjoy the wonderful person that is Ginger Gaffney. Here is Ginger. Ginger, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be talking to you. Can you first tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Um, I'm a maybe 27-year horse trainer now. Uh, I work and live in New Mexico in the southwest in the U.S., um, I would say my background is in Western uh, and natural horsemanship, though not really necessarily Pirelli, like some people assume that when you say natural. I was more like a Ray Hunt kind of gal and Buck Brenneman. And then somewhere into about 12 years of really studying with the Western guys, I got really interested in classical horsemanship. So I spent a lot of time with uh, French and Portuguese trainers and started really focusing on that probably for another 10 to 12 years. So my, my horsemanship and my training kind of is a blend of that. And at this point in my career, it's really my blend. I'm not like somebody else's um, methodology. I just kind of pick it up here in New Mexico, probably like there, there's a lot of people who 
um, do a variety of things with horses. They're, they're not necessarily breed specific or uh, event specific. We have a lot of crossover learners and people who spend a ton of time in the mountains on horseback and do cow work in the arena or learn a bit about dressage. We have a lot of those kind of riders and that, that's kind of my, my niche, you know, is, is working with those. And I still, I'm 58 years old now. I still start a few colts every year. I like to take them all the way to, like if I start them in the spring, I like to ride them all the way through the summer. So I don't necessarily do the same kind of colt starting that most people do. I just, I want to make sure the horse gets a good start. So anyhow, that's a little bit about me. I've been doing it a long time, mm. uh, you know, and I still really love it. It's just, it's, a, it's just really something I want to do for the rest of my life. I, I work hard at keeping my body healthy <laughs> so I can maintain this, this career for a long time. Yeah. And do you work hard keeping your body healthy through the horses or outside of horses as well? Um, well, if I'm not riding, I end up having more tr trouble, you know, mm. so I have, I mean, when I'm riding and, uh, staying steady and staying in shape with that, I'm in really good shape. Yeah. If I have to, if I take a month break or even a little longer, I have to, I have to do something, you know, to, to, yeah. um, to back up my, my body. Um, but, but, and I, I don't tend during the season, which is summer season, spring, summer and fall, I'm riding and teaching seven to eight people a day so i don't tend to have to exercise at the wow, end of the day that'll do but I, but I, but I, yeah but i do uh, a little alternative therapies like i do acupuncture to mm. keep my my muscles from just freezing up on me you know yeah. i haven't found i haven't found like some people do the pilates and the stretching acupuncture is really what's working for me so yeah, I think you just have to find what works for your body but yeah, yeah absolutely. i do that actually during my busy season I see an acupuncturist once a week. Yeah. yeah, it's a good idea. I have acupuncture too, and their ability to um, to do in a couple of pins what an entire body massage can do always amazes me. It's a great therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have recently recently written a book called Half Broke. How did that come about? So I love to write. I pretty much love poetry and nonfiction. I've never really written fiction, but I love to read. I love to write. And um, sometime, uh, I don't know, about five years ago, six years ago, I found out about a, um, MFA, an MFA program here in, in my neck of the woods. It's called the Institute of American Indian Arts. So it's Native American run MFA program in creative writing. I'm not native, um, but they allow a small percentage of non-native writers in. And I applied and I got in and I applied to be in the poetry program. And so when when my classes started and I started writing, I wasn't writing poetry. I started writing these stories uh, about these essays about this time that I spent at this ranch that's near my home that is a prison alternative. And that's what kept coming. It just kept coming and kept coming. And I had to talk to the director of the program and say, hey, you know, I think I have to switch to, to nonfiction because I'm, I'm writing nonfiction. That's what's coming. And I, you know, the first, really the first week of school, I just started, these stories started kind of pouring out of me every time I sat down to write. Um, so that's how it got started. I didn't think of it as a book. I just was writing, you know, and I, I love to write. I think as a 
horse trainer, somebody in the horse business, like I like to keep my kind of intuitive pathways open. Um, sometimes like this is a physical job and sometimes I spend so much physicality up that I don't really have that extra energy to keep those pathways open. And so I kind of went back into writing and back into school so that I could keep myself complex enough to be a good listener, mm -hmm. to continue to be a really good listener, not just to people, but to, to horses and, and just to have another creative outlet. Um, Cause I actually think of horse training as a creative outlet. Um, I, I think, the, yeah, the craft of, of riding and training is a very creative path. So I kind of went to it for that. I wasn't thinking about another career, but when these stories started coming, and they're all from this like my first year and a half of of working at this ranch uh that's like i said it's a prison alternative and when i started writing those stories i i tr i went ahead with a couple of them once they got far enough along i sent them out to some uh literary magazines to see if they would stand up as uh you know in the literary way mm -hmm. um instead of like sending them out to horse magazines which i think probably they would have stood up there well. Um, and I, I got them accepted and they ended up getting published in some magazines here in the States, which gave me a lot of confidence that, that maybe I was onto something, you know, that I needed to keep writing. Um, and I needed that confidence because, you know, I, I'm a horse trainer, not a writer. I think of myself as a student of writing, but now I have a book published. So now I got to call myself a writer. Yeah, but I still feel pretty much like a student of writing. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how it's got started. Yeah, wonderful. I love how um, even though you're working with horses still every day, you understand that even that's not as balanced as it could be. And you needed something else to offset that to keep the, the intuition and creativity going. It's amazing. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. And tell us more about, then the book you wrote is called Half Broke. And um, tell us more about how that began. Okay, uh, in terms of being over at the ranch? Yeah, how did you yeah. first come to, to be at the ranch? How did your life at the ranch begin? Yeah. Okay, so um, just like most trainers around the world, you get these phone calls from pretty desperate people who are having some trouble with their horses. And you get a little used to them, you know, and you have to sit back and listen and try to figure out what's really going on, you know, um, and whether or not you can help the person or not. And um, that's what happened. The, the ranch, which is really just across the river from my home, it's maybe seven miles away from my home um, on the other side of the Rio Grande here. Uh, they called me. It was a woman at the other end of the line. There was a lot of noise in the background, so I could hardly hear, and she was kind of screaming. And it sounded like she was in a restaurant. There were plates, and everything was kind of clashing, and tons of people were talking behind her. And she was telling me about how they needed help with their horses, that the horses were chasing them and uh, knocking them down and grabbing the trash when they took the trash out. Uh, and I kind of it took a while, but I kind of figured out who was calling me because I, I knew about that that ranch I mean everybody here in the valley knows about it and I knew they had horses but nobody knew much more than that and because it's a totally surrounded uh, by like 12 foot tall walls you can't really see in so everything that I knew about it was just hearsay 
And so that was that was her calling me, one of the women who was involved with the horses at the time, and calling me, asking me if I would be able to come over and help them. I assumed it was maybe like a one to two to three or four times I'd go over and visit and help them. And it, it really turned into about a six-year project. Um, the first year and a half is um, what I write about in the book when I first go to the ranch. And um, the horses were really in a lot of trouble. They were hurting a lot of people, but they were also getting hurt by some of the people there because people there really didn't have any background in horses. And so the horses had become very aggressive, but I would say more than anything, they had to, to learn how to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, working, living and working, it was only 17 acres, it's completely enclosed. There's about a, at that time, 120 people living on 17 acres, all of whom had, had been um, sentenced there. A judge had told them that they could finish out their prison sentence by going to the ranch. Um, and it's a really alternative structure at the ranch. And so how they had horses and how they uh, got horses is a whole other story. But they had been in operation. I was operation. going to ask you that. How, what, what in, why did they get horses? So the, the, it's an operation that's been going since the early 1970s. And when they bought this ranch, they had horses. Um, and so oh, they just so the ranch was okay. the horses were on the ranch because I was trying to think of it because nobody was a horse person when I read your book and I was like well, who was it who decided horses would be a good idea <laughs> that makes sense now that the horses were already there yeah and there's a lot of stories that when I when the book came out and um, some of the much older people who had been living on the ranch in the 70s some of the first original residents a couple of them contacted me after the book was out and they were telling me stories about the horses back then. And they were exactly like the stories I write about in the book that the horses were hurting people. People were hurting horses. You know, there was just a, a lot of lack of ability. Um, um, you know, the horses were pretty much rescue horses probably and had a lot of trauma and issues already. And then they move on to a ranch with 120 felons basically or you know ex ex cons and who haven't learned the life skills to be able to deal with you know themselves and other humans let alone horses right exactly yeah. thank you that's perfect yeah wow and so that had been going on for an extraordinarily long time before you got there when did you first go what year was it uh 2013 the spring of 2013 and what yeah. did you find oh oh uh, um yeah well um first of all nobody could catch any of the horses and so the way they would um bring them in you know to feed them is they would go out into the pastures and with the tops of the trash cans start to go out as far and get behind them and start banging on the trash cans to make them run towards the corrals (laughs) wow so Um, instigate fear fear equals food yeah couldn't couldn't many of them couldn't be caught there were a few that could be caught but they were also kind of dangerous you wouldn't want to be too close to them Um, and they didn't have the skills of even knowing really how to put a halter on a horse Uh, so yeah and as I really within the first few days I found out that one of the horses had a serious injury 
it was a mayor and a, her also her sister they hadn't they'd been dropped off at the ranch two years prior nobody could catch them so they've been running around this ranch for two years with never anybody putting a finger on them and so they got very good at getting away the horses somebody tried to rope one of them when it was in a corral and was underneath a shelter and the horse reared up and smacked its head on the on the beam and broke its face open and that was about six weeks before i started so the horse had a really bad infected face and one of the eyes was completely shut and that they had the vet out a number of times but nobody could catch gotcha. her so so i had um I had things i had to fix really quick um, or at least try to and not entirely but try to at least catch her so that we could treat her um yeah and also just try to get some of the horses to respect human beings again and that was going to be my job and it was very clear that i couldn't enlist any help because nobody there was going to be of much help and the horses were running over them anyhow so i had to start establishing one by one each horse in the round pen try to establish some sense of respect and uh meaning like they really didn't uh humanity two-legged people were not to be trusted or respected i had to make sense to them that two-legged people did could make sense to them like yeah. i needed to needed to speak their language um and so gently as much as gently as i could without getting killed i had to do that one by one with each of those horses and i really mean it without being yeah i was i mean i was close to getting creamed and uh, really hurt a number of times so it was a big project <laughs> yeah how many horses were there about 10 at that time god yeah. 10 horses and how many people were on the horse program when you got there in the horse program maybe 15 so you had 15 humans and 10 horses and you walked into an absolute fear <laughs> fear hurting each other mess oh my god so what was it like on that first day when you walked in and what made you stay yeah um when i first walked in you know it's it's pretty inch i hadn't spent a lot of time in a prison environment so when i first walked in they don't wear uh prisoners clothes there or anything like that they get a lot of donations so they're in regular street clothes everybody but you know right away you know just by the way people talk to you and whether they can't meet you in the eye and the way they walk and just the way they carry themselves that they're you know they're beating down human beings, you know, they're, um, and you know, you're not in the normal spot. So I don't know. I sort of had to take a lot of breaths and stay open-minded because I wasn't all that open-minded to be honest with you. I, I had like a lot of the folks there are in there for drug, drug related crimes. And I had been robbed a number of times and many times my saddles had been stolen and my tax been stolen because I live in a pretty crime-ridden area, and so I didn't. I wasn't a real open-minded person about it. Um, I'll be honest, and I've told mm -hmm. that to other people too. Um, so this this being there and seeing people there, this level of humanity was a new thing for me. Um, and I had to breathe and just. I was quiet a lot because I'm pretty quiet anyhow, and I just try to listen, and then I try to observe and just watch how they were moving and 
everything about their body language, the human body language, um, was all wrong for the way horses really need us to be in order for them to trust us. Mm. Um, there, there was either you were either super broken down and uh, looking down at the ground, uh, shuffling your feet, no no confidence, what not no confidence whatsoever, really beaten down human beings, or you had the really ultra proud, aggressive, macho, you know, guys, you know, that walking around like they're going to throw a punch. <laughs> yeah, false bravado, though. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. kind of an extreme, and mm. um, none of those, none of those postures and behaviors were going to help with the horses. And so it was kind of my job to try to show them how to move uh, in a different way that the horses could really respect and honor and develop a relationship around yeah so that, could that, trust and yeah. i saw in the the book as well you started by showing them how to walk you actually gave them a walking lesson that's right and i mean i continued to do that for six years i would get new people every four to five months not everybody would leave the horse program I would keep some of the ones that wanted to stay and then I'd get new people. But every time I get a new person in, I'd have to teach them about walking and how to, how to walk around horses, how to hold yourself. Um, so yeah, the walking is the first lesson and I just had to change so much body posturing. Um, and they, they finally got it. I mean, they really got it. And now they teach each other that I don't have to teach them that they each teach each other that. And, uh, I think that's really helped in the long run with uh, with some of them that have actually left the ranch now that they really know how to carry themselves in a way that is open, but people will also respect them, but that they don't look like gang members. Um, and uh, I think it's been a really interesting lesson for a lot of people. Of course, the horses really take to it really well. So, And when the horses can feel... Um calm and responsive to a human you know that other humans can as well they're such a great mirror yeah yeah and also the little mirror that your your troubles too yeah it it was um it was really interesting who was the guy who um who connected with your horse moo randy is was his name in the book yeah yeah so can you tell us a bit more about randy so he was a guy who just can talks constantly but was repelling people with his energy yeah so randy uh was in his late 30s he had very few teeth left in his mouth because he's been a meth addict for 20 years um and he was in prison for I think about 16 years, 10 of which he did in prison. And then he, he uh, tried to get a judge to sentence him over to the ranch so he could finish up his time here. And his crime was that he was driving down the highway with one of his, he was driving a big semi and he ran into a car uh, with family and I think killed a few people. And um, that's when he finally got caught, you know, as a drug addict. Um, so that's how he ended up at the ranch. He's pretty, pretty, um, like a st crazy, constantly talking, not well balanced emotionally. Um, and um, at the ranch, unlike prison, at this 
place, this prison alternative, they really don't allow any of the residents to be medicated on anything. And I think Randy probably was, you know, had some kind of co-existing disorder, um, but that he wasn't medicated. So he would, he would constantly be moving, constantly be twiddling his fingers, uh, always talking, not listening, uh, kind of, and, and, and aggressive. And, and uh, he was really smart too, but Mm -hmm. he would, he was, nobody liked him because he wouldn't like he had no social skills whatsoever he was smart and he was a little bit of a pain in the ass to everybody so um and for me to try to teach him was really hard he didn't listen um I want to say that when I first started there the whole the whole crew was mostly all men except for the two women who had been put in charge of it because they had had so many accidents with people and horses that they finally put two women in charge to see if that would help. But anyhow, a ton of, there was about 15 of them, like I said, and probably half of them left and got off the program because, because of me, because they had asked me to come in and that they all had to listen to me. And a lot of the men just did not want to listen. Randy, he sometimes listened, sometimes he didn't, but yeah, he, he got, he got into it pretty good with one of my horses in the book. And I can get really dark and angry too when people mess around with horses in a way and aren't listening. I, I'm better at it now, but in my youth, I would get triggered by that kind of person, you know, who was just really aggressive and not listening. So he, he ended up, Randy was handling one of my horses. So one of the scenes in the book is me, you know, trying to get my horse back from him. And really, I remember the feeling like I just wanted to kick the shit out of him. But the, the residents came behind me and really helped me, you know, get, get control of my own anger and get, and get my horse away from Randy before anything really lit up. So there's a bit about me in the book, you know, I'm not this perfect person. That's for sure. I've got my issues. So I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just this like character that went in there to save everybody I had some saving to do myself you know yeah yeah and that's what I loved about it I think that's what makes it a complete book um, because you talked about the residents um, who was was it Randy or was it Tony who stood there and said to you why are you here oh it was Tony I'm sorry yeah that was Tony uh-huh yeah, yeah. so he yeah, was the one who actually made you kind of realize and say it out loud and understand it yourself that you needed to be there as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It works on all levels. I, I know that um, I did a little bit of um, volunteer work at a drug and alcohol rehab center because I used to do equine therapy. And I thought if I'm going to deal in, if I'm going to be in this, um, this line of work, I'm probably going to come into contact with drug and alcohol and I have no experience. So I thought I'd go and, and volunteer at a local place. And um, I was like a duck to water. I actually understood them better than I could understand people walking, you know, at a dinner party or mm. people I'd meet in the street. I found them actually to be a lot easier to understand because they were as sensitive as I was and, mm. and the communication was a lot, um, it, it, it was different and we understood each other quickly and they were all like, so who's the addict in your family? You've been through this before, obviously. And I'm like, never, I haven't been through any of this, but I know you. I know what you're feeling on the inside and I get it. So I loved watching and, and reading 
um, about your experience there because I could really relate to how it works both ways and the cycles together. I, I, I often say that um, like being around people who are really in recovery, really in recovery for a couple of years, like there's actually nobody better to be around. Yeah. Um, they're the most honest and bare and alive human beings. And uh, I, I learned that from this experience. I did not know that before. So I learned that through being at the ranch. And I have very dear friends that have now left the ranch because their sentences were up and they are able to leave and they're doing so well. And they're still some of my favorite people to be with. You know, there's, there's the clarity in their presence and in their eyes. And like you said, it's um, the vulnerability. Um, you know, people don't just become drug addicts because they're drug addicts. There's usually a big story behind that, that thing that happened to them. If not one story, but maybe 10 stories. And once you hear enough stories, which I have, you get to feeling like how human they really are. Um, so I really can't see somebody here in New Mexico. We have a lot of drug issues, uh, especially in my valley where I live. I really can't see anybody on the street who's, you know, looking for handouts, knowing that they're going to go spend the money on some, some kind of drug. I, I don't see them as a drug addict. I see them as somebody's daughter or somebody's brother, you know, like behind the drugs, there's this really, there are these human beings. And when I spent all this time at the ranch, it started peeling away all my prejudices and judgments that I had that I carried around. Yeah. That I can't, that I can't carry around anymore. Yeah. yeah. We, we choose not to. And the amount of trauma that I saw, I'm like, it's just layers of trauma. And the closer they get through the program, the more they have to, um, in a safe way, you know, face their trauma and actually understand who they are. That's why I loved being around them as well, because we could have seriously deep conversations about um, their stuff immediately. We didn't have to do kind of the niceties. They're like, I'm here because of this. This is what I do. This is why I'm doing it. I'm like, wow. Uh -huh. wouldn't it be amazing to meet people in the street <laughs> to be able to get that deep so fast so <laughs> it was it was what they call the congruence that I loved about them uh-huh nice yes now there's something that I really um I really loved in the book um that you said and it was I can't remember it was Joey working with Luna I think it was and you said this and it it really called to me and I've listened to it a lot of times um because it amazed me. I'm just going to read this a little bit. Okay. The emptiness of him confuses her. She is transfixed by his disappearance, his body becoming a hollow shell. Horses look for life in a body. Our outer shell is rigid, but on the inside we are like water, continually fluid. Animals feel the absence of that flow, the stagnation, the crippling death of no motion. Everything is movement to a horse. Everything has a current. The smallest ripple has so much to say. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Because it really touched me. Yeah. Well, um, I, I know if you've got horse people listening to this, they'll, they get it because like um, everything is movement to a horse, right? So when, when, you know, it's very rare that horses don't get each other because they have so much life in their bodies and they count on all that life to be their communication device. But when you are working with people whose the life has been beat out of their bodies, like Joey's, then he had no life 
uh, had no motion and he had no way of communicating to the horses. Um, and we are, we're all made up of water, mostly fluid. I forget what the percentage of it is. And when somebody like Joey or most people at the ranch, the trauma of their lives, it just beats that fluidity out of them. And they, they don't act like living beings anymore. And a lot of them stand around kind of staring at the ground. Um, uh, just depending on how far along they're in their recovery, there's a lot of them that can't speak a word. Um, and they just look at the ground and twirl their hair and go away. They, they disappear. The horses don't know what to do with that. You know, that's what that scene is about. There's a horse named Luna who was watching him and she could not figure out what he was. And And she was the injured horse too. She was the one with the cut. Yeah. She was the one with the the broken Mm. face and she, uh, she was watching him, just watching him and watching him wondering i mean i was watching her watch him and then i was looking at him and she's wondering what is that i don't know what that is she could not make him out as a living thing um until he started moving i got him to start moving and at some point he kind of stumbled uh and that like that that life of his body that stumbling process made, made her go oh he's alive she didn't know. Um, it was him actually kind of almost fall, falling down a little bit and stumbling where she, she went, oh, he's alive. It's kind of like coming upon a snake and it won't move and it won't move. And then mm. and then, then all of a sudden it moves, but you think it's dead because um, it's not moving and, you know, and other animals that like to trick us that way. But um, that's what she was looking at. And that's kind of where all that, that writing came out of was trying to explain to, to readers how sensitive horses really are and how much they count on on movement and life to be a communication device. It is the only language. They don't know how to have language other than movement um, and smell and sight, but movement is their biggest language. And when we humans walk around in weird ways or, or if we leave our body because we've had so much going on in our day, our horses get a bit confused by us, you know. Oh. Wow, and she was a horse that had had minimal handling by this stage, and yeah. it was at that moment that, um, and she hadn't had the halter off in some time, and it was in that same sequence um, when she was trying to figure him out that he asked, "Could he take the halter off?" And she allowed him to. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think that was when she was? concerned about him going I can't figure out to going I think I understand you now to going yes I will allow you to do something that I haven't allowed anyone to do for a very long time well he was fixated on her he he, you know a lot of a lot of um people at the ranch have little behavioral disorders and he his one of his was just get fixated and he was just he wouldn't really work with any of the other horses he was just fixated on Luna he had put all his eggs in that basket and she wasn't showing any interest in him. Mm. And so he was so fixated, but he was completely incompetent in gaining her interest or trust because he just didn't have the skills and he was a fairly traumatized human being. So semi-zombie-like is what I would say he was. And um, but but uh, it shut down. And there was a moment there that day where a bunch of uh, kittens came out from underneath the coop that we had nearby 
then we've been looking for them so that we could get them because the mama either disappeared or died and we, we were trying to catch the kittens and he was so fixated on Luna but then when he saw the kittens his whole um, countenance changed he got happy and he was like ginger ginger look there are the kitties that we've been looking for and he started calling for the kitties and his whole he started moving towards the kitties and he got softer and softer and softer and Luna followed he went to the other side of the round pen and Luna followed him it was the first time she'd ever followed him but he wasn't aware of it because he was thinking about the kitties mm. so he became he became alive and in some kind of way heart open probably if i was looking a little baby kitten i'd be pretty heart open (laughs) he was picking up the kittens and luna was like leaning in and trying to sniff them and then we were putting them in the crates and he just he became a, a soft lovable creature uh he did in that moment joey and luna luna saw him for the first time and she wanted to be next to him and she was following him all around the uh, round pen. Um, at that point, she was conv- convinced she really, really liked him and you could see it and you, you've seen it with other horses when they mm. feel really comfortable with you. And she, she broke free of her defenses because he became alive again in some way that she could trust. I don't know. It was just a magical, magical day. I had so many days like that over there that I could only fit so many of them in the book. Um, but that that story of those two. And then, so I was not sure he should take that uh, halter off because she was very difficult to catch still. And, but I decided just to put my faith in, the, in those two and, and get out of my own way and get out of my own brain and just try something new. And it was beautiful, mm. so, yeah. And was she more responsive to him after that? Was that the yeah. start of something new or was yeah. it just a moment in time? No, it, it would it would grew it grew. It grew all the way to there's a scene at the very end of the book where Joey Joey's handling Luna right before we put our first ride on her and you know, she'll follow him around like a just like a puppy. She followed him from then on. But but it was also whenever he would have hard days, I would have to tell him, you know, Joey, just remember, you've got to be soft. You can't be hard. You have to be soft. You have to be, you have to move. And so he always had to work on himself. Uh, it wasn't like that was over. But but he got it. He learned from that experience of what made that work for her. Mm, he and had a he, reference point to go back to. Yeah, exactly. A positive reference point instead of his normal way of shutting down and getting angry. Yeah. But it must be massive for them. So I would imagine if I was in prison and all I did was shut down, so it it would probably start in childhood. I wouldn't have come from, you know, those who end up in prison generally um, don't have amazing childhood. So I would have been shut down there. So everything in my body would tell me if I speak up, I get hurt. And I don't mean you know my feelings hurt I mean physically probably beaten and going through the prison system I would do the same so what an extraordinary gift um when your entire life right up into your 20s you know is is says that in everything you do you don't speak up you don't have a voice what you say doesn't matter um and you will literally be beaten down and then all of a sudden you're shown that um if you actually stay soft and open that that there's a different world out there for you yeah yeah 
uh, Joey's doing really well. You know, he's out and um, working at a restaurant with a couple of the people that I that I know from the ranch. And he always says that the horses taught him how to be better around people. That now he has some social skills. He he can trust people. And but it was the first thing he ever trusted was that horse Luna. Yeah. Probably in his whole life. Wow. Yeah. Because they teach in a way that um, I don't know. I don't believe because I've seen it so many times that people used to say to me, why do you think it works? I'm like, they teach you in a way that is so authentic and so kind and so driven from the heart. Whereas when we try to teach with humans, we're stepping in with all of our stuff and our mm-hmm. own traumas and our own judgments and our own beliefs. And we're trying to impart something. I said, horses do it in a way that is just so beautiful and open um, that it, yeah. it hits you deeper and it, it stays for longer. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and you talked in the book as well about um, your own experiences with um, with people like the famous trainer. I always always had a big smile on my face when you would talk about the famous trainer. I think we all know a famous trainer who, um, and I've heard about a lot of them here in Australia too, who have very big names, but then I talk to people who've actually worked with them and they say, oh, no, what they show you and who they are behind the scenes are two completely different people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were talking about there was um, a horse that you worked with um, who didn't want to give their power up to you. And um, maybe it wasn't with the famous trainer. This is about Coco, the horse. Yeah, Coco, yeah. Can you talk to me about Coco a bit? Because I found that a beautiful story too. So I was traveling, teaching, you know, I do some traveling and teaching, and I did a clinic with a whole bunch of uh, fox hunters. I guess you probably know what that is, right? Yeah. You? Yeah, okay. We don't um, have it here, but yes, I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. they're a one, wonderful group of people, you know, they're usually just, what I'd say, balls to the walls. They can ride the hell out of a horse, but they don't have a lot of horsemanship. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, uh, so that was the crowd. I was teaching a whole crowd of fox hunters, most of whom were riding on, ex uh, racehorse tra- track horses uh and so they they didn't have any like groundwork skills they didn't have any subtlety with the way they were riding but it was a lot of fun to teach them uh because they weren't they didn't have any fear so but here is a group of 12 women and it, they all wanted individual lessons and so i thought that was fine except for uh this one woman came in with a horse named coco and I noticed that everybody stayed around. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody left during that lesson. So they all knew something was coming. And uh, so Coco came in all saddled up in the bridle. No, no halter, no lead rope. Um, and I've got my microphone on because, because I can, so I can talk to people across the arena. And she comes in and uh, she was like, you, you going to ride her first or am I? And the horse can't stay on the ground she's she's rearing the whole time the lady's bringing her in <laughs> and, uh, and that and, goes and to the, show how how fearless they are my god why would you get on a horse like that <laughs> anyhow so i i just uh uh i i, I laughed so hard when she said are you going to ride her or that my microphone squealed and then i i felt kind of bad because the lady didn't understand why i was laughing so then i just got got somebody to give me a halter and a long rope and I started working Coco from the ground and she was 
pretty upset about that because I was controlling her feet or at least asking one foot to be here and one foot to be there. And she was trying to strike at me. She tried to, uh, she reared and tried to strike at my head. She swung around to try to kick me. She launched at me with her teeth. So this is why everybody stayed for the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> figuring it out pretty quick. Um, but I just decided that I needed only so much control over her that if I took it all, we would fight probably for three days straight. So I would get the right front foot to go at least part of the way where I wanted it. And I would give her, like I would give her her back feet and say, never mind, just give me your front feet. They'll do that today. So I took my time and I didn't take all of her power away all at one moment. And I never actually took it all away. I ended up just sort of making a deal with her where I finally, when I did ride her, which I think was the second day, um, I led her, I, I wanted to go where I wanted to go. Like I wanted to go to the far right corner of the arena. I would let her pick whatever gate she wanted to, to be in. Like she, she just took off the first day and just kind of, you know, loped off or cantered off. And all I did was direct her head to the far right side of the corner. And at least I got one thing. I wanted one thing. I just wanted her to go over there. But she got to choose to, to, to get me there, however she wanted. So I kept making these deals with her for three days. And, you know, by the end, there was a lot of, a lot of trust. And um, we were doing a little jumping. We went and rode out in the pasture. And... Everybody was so awed by what I did, but it wasn't like I did much. I just didn't overwhelm her with what I needed her to be. You know, mm. I just I just gave her some room. I think she needed it. And I think a lot of race horses do need that, actually. Um, track X-track horses, they just need some room. You can't just control them, every bit of them. Um, so that's what I mean. I, I'm always trying to play around with... Um, what the horse offers uh, and what, I, you know, what, what they need and how I need to help them, but how I don't want to take everything about them away. I don't, I don't want the horse to be completely uh, controlled by me. I want them to have some of their own choices and some of their own life. And um, I do that a lot with a lot of horses, but that was a pretty strong example. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a great example. And I spoke a little bit about the famous trainer before. What did you learn by working with and for the famous trainer? Um, I spent a lot of time with him, you know, probably five years. It wasn't just that one uh, time. I mean, I, I committed myself to learning as much as I could from a very well-known uh, trainer here in the States. And the, the story I write about in the book is the last time I worked with him. Um because what what I I learned what I, I did learn a lot and I it was always about uh, starting colts that's what I was learning when I was working with him and just getting better and better at starting young horses and I was in my mid to late twenties and uh, so it was a good time in my life to really really delve into that and he was considered to be one of the best um, still is I think but um, you know what I what I learned is that. At some point in your career, you, you have to trust yourself more than you trust everybody else. That was a hard lesson for me to learn, that I had that I had also some skills, that I had a toolbox, that you can go and learn from people all you want, but you have to trust also what you know. Um, 
and a lot of times when I'm teaching, it's often with women that struggle the most with giving, honoring themselves enough to, to, you can go work with a trainer, but you should blend it into what you know. And at the time when I was in my twenties, I didn't know how to do that. So I was just kind of following the lead of these other trainers and this one in particular. And I ended up, ended up hurting a horse during that that clinic or that it was a three weeks we were starting cults and one of the cults I started ended up getting pretty injured. And it was that injury that really changed, changed my trajectory, you know? And so as much as I learned from him, I had to, I had to leave him. I had to go and move on and trust what I, what I knew, you know, trust myself as much as I trusted somebody else. Mm, And what your values were. Yeah, yeah. As well, yeah. what you wouldn't do, wouldn't, wouldn't do with horses. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a big moment in my career. I mean, because I, I really needed to lean on my some of my instincts. I'd lean on them as much as I lean on anybody else's. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's a familiar story. A lot of horse people. It's it's about speaking up as well. I think it's mm-hmm. a very hard thing for women to, and that that ability to speak up and say, no, this will not happen. No, I will not do that. It's not acceptable. Right. To me. It's a really yeah. difficult one. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I still find it tricky. I'm finding it easier because of the repercussions I've had from not doing it, like similar to your story, is, is learning how to do that. Um, there's a really interesting woman you speak of in the book, uh, Eliza, and mm-hmm. you spoke about how horses... Um, woke her body up it's like she was completely asleep and it woke her up and you actually had a similar experience on the back of a what might be seen as a runaway horse after a deer I think it was can you tell uh-huh. us a bit about that um Eliza first maybe uh she's yeah, yeah she's a uh, early 30s late 20s when I met her <clears throat> another one that was uh, tra- real traumatized and I ended up learning about her story uh, but uh, her family history um, but yeah she couldn't speak very much and she wouldn't look you in the eye and she had um, scars on her wrist for, she was a cutter I guess they call it a cutter where well, she wasn't really suicidal but she would cut out her wrists um, and um, she wasn't I don't know they were worried that she she may have some mental health issues so she was about to get kicked off the ranch because they really can't deal with suicidal and they don't have any medical help or um, they don't actually employ any therapists at this place. So, so they, they were getting ready to move her and two of the women that were in charge of the horse program asked me if we could try to take her on and see if the horses could help her and and wake her up. And um, anyhow, there was a scene in the book where we're trying just basic horsemanship skills just trying to get the residents to learn how to pick up the horse's feet and hold the horse's feet up and I was getting ready to start teaching them how to do some trimming because uh, I, I I wanted them to get some of those skills as well they could take care of their own horses they wouldn't have to hire outside farriers um, so this is a scene where Eliza first gets involved with the horses and ends up picking up this horse's foot who's a who's a horse that really doesn't like, he's an Arab and he doesn't like to stand still for very much, let alone get his feet picked up. And she ends up uh, being able to do it and it kind of breaks open her whole world. It's the first time after that scene happens, it's the first time I ever heard her speak. She was actually, she was saying sentences before she would just mutter a few words 
Um, and she was a very, she was very far gone emotionally and physically and uh, spiritually. And she says to me that she came to, to, to do that ranch because she knew she was going to die. She was either going to just die in prison or die from an overdose, but she was just basically expecting to die. Um, and I, and I'm just real good friends with her now. It's been seven years or something like that. And she is actually a, a farrier now that, that whole mo that whole day where she learned how to pick up that horse's foot and started to learn how to trim a foot, um, woke her world up so much that she's a part-time farrier now uh, in a town nearby. That's um, incredible. And yeah. so she was incredibly shut down mm -hmm. and the horse allowed her to pick the hoof up. Yeah, she stuck with it. You know, he was jumping in the air. At one point he lifted her up. The she had in between. She's a big woman. She's strong and she could hang on. She had his foot between her legs and he reared up and she went up in the air with him and came back down. And then he, he got loose from the handler and he was hopping all around and she was hopping all around with him. And finally he just gave, gave in. And it was the most amazing uh, situation of focus that I'd ever seen out of somebody who had absolutely no focus and no life. And she just kind of, woke up in that moment and she she still talks about it and she of course she tells the story from her point of view i was watching it mm. going oh my god <laughs> yeah. and it's similar to the the guy with the kittens isn't it it's just you know a minute of shutdown and all of a sudden they're awake and this horse was yeah. going if you're holding me and you're shut down i'm not safe so you'd better wake up and he did what he yeah, needed to do in order to exactly get her to wake up. Yeah, wow. We did that with each other and did it for six and a half years, seven years, you know, where, and I, lots of new people, but it was a constant process of them becoming, uh, you know, becoming a human again. And the, the horses were the best teacher. I always say I had to do very little. It was all the horses, you know, that really helped. That, but I've watched so many people become a human again, you know, learn how to be human again. Mm. Yes, that's true. But also um, taking the credit because before you were there, it was an absolute shit show. <laughs> so, was. You know, they needed the guidance and they needed the leadership and they needed you there to be able to um, give them the direction to do it. So, you yeah. know, full, full marks to you for being able to do that. And what's your own story of how Horse did that for you? Uh, um, so I'm one of these people that didn't have horses when I was younger because I didn't come from a family that was horsey and we, um, we lived on the coast. So where I live, there really wasn't much horse work going on. Um, but I've wanted one, wanted one, wanted one, and never got one. I would get like little stuffed ponies on my top of my Christmas, uh, packaging and I would just get like little toys, horse toys. So when I finally was able to, to, to get my first horse, I mean, I, I rode in college, I rode and I also got to ride some when I was younger, but not much. And then when I got to college, I got to ride a lot. And I started working at a quarter horse barn right after college, um, where the woman there just thought I knew what I was doing. And I was, I didn't think I knew what I was doing, but I think I was a natural enough rider that she got kept giving me more and more horses to ride. So that was sort of how I started learning 
about more and more horses. Um, but I, I, um, my story is that I'm a pretty big introvert. I didn't speak until I was like seven. I also, um, if I, if if I was living in the time we're living in now, I would have said I was gender fluid. That I, I didn't understand that I was a female. I was confused about my, about my gender. I was telling somebody about it the other day. I, we were at a Thanksgiving dinner, and my mother's brother, uh, Jerry, came back from military academy. And he was much younger than my mom. And he, for the first time, I saw him with a mustache. And I was about 13. We were all sitting at the table. And uh, I said out loud to my whole family, I can't wait until I can, I can grow my mustache. And I did. I, everybody looked at me like I, I knew in that moment something was wrong. <laughs> yeah, by their yeah. reaction, though, not from yeah. what you were actually saying, because it was normal yeah. for you to feel that way. I had no idea that I couldn't, you know, uh, that I wasn't a boy. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I, I know now that I'm a female and I'm not like a trans, uh, uh, but I do feel like I, I had dealings with that when I was younger about my confusion around gender and my own sexuality. So I feel like I lived in a world where I lived very isolated. Uh, and good um, reasons to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. I, yeah. So it, it troubled me all the way through. I, I've had a terrible time with relationships. Um, I have been in one for a long, long time now, but up all the way into my twenties, I, I couldn't really have relationships. And um, so I kind of, and I was like a ghost. A lot of people who knew me then said I was like a ghost. Like I was hardly there that, that they couldn't really see me or hear me or feel me. And, um, so when I went to the ranch and I started seeing a lot of the people move around and a lot of the ways they couldn't really uh, talk and I just totally felt like I knew them, you know, and it brought up a lot of stuff like my past and my history and kind of made me really self-reflect um, on that. So there's a little bit about that in the book as well. And there was a horse you were riding who opened your body up. Oh yeah, yes. I, 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 there's, there's my, my horse savior is Belle. Uh, I have a few chapters about her, but it was, I was, I think I was a natural as, as that lady had said at the court horse barn because I was a watcher. I was, a, I watched. I didn't talk. I, I watched movement and sounds, and I was probably more, a little bit more like animals than I was human when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so when I finally was able to have my own horse, yeah, I had, I had like that, that experience that so many of us have had that I feel like I became enlightened on some level, like her, her level of awareness of the world around her got my, kind of woke me up, you know, to being that aware, to being that sensitive, to be that alive. Um, so, but it, you know, I was riding other horses in, it wasn't until really I had my own and she had some, she had some big issues too. So yeah. we worked, we worked through them. I, I, she passed away like maybe five years ago, you know, but I, yeah, she was a force of nature. And uh, I always, she was um kind of busy and, and very hot. And um, my mother is a, 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 always been a big talker and my family's a big talker and they were all real busy and they talk over each other and they're really loud. And she was a lot, my mayor, Belle, she was a lot like my family. 
-hmm. and I used to say to myself, if, if I can, if you and I can get along, then I can get along with my family. You know, she was sort of, she pushed me over the, the bubble of really knowing how to be with my family and love them again. Uh, so yeah. I think so. Wow. so many gifts from horses. Yeah. Um, there was another really interesting story in there, um, a woman called Olivia, or a, a woman, but yeah. still very young, and she had really obsessive behaviours behaviors and was unable to touch, and the horses showed her the way. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Olivia was the youngest woman on the ranch. She comes a little later in the book because she wasn't in my first group of people that I worked with, um, and I think she was 18, and that was really young, and she spent most of her young life in foster care uh, and in and out of juvenile detention. Um, and she, she had some kind of co-occurring um, disorder where she couldn't um, touch people's stuff. Like if anybody touched her, she was always saying people were touching her toothbrush and who was touching, who touched my hairbrush. And when she was at dinner, she couldn't, her fork could never hit the plate, could only like stab at the food. And if it hit the plate, she would have to go get another fork. And she would not let anybody touch her physically. Um, and everybody really liked her. She was just a really lovely young woman. And everybody at the ranch knew she was really troubled. But everybody really supported her and kind of like dealt with her issues. Because she would get kind of mad at everybody for, you know, touching her stuff. She was kind of pathological about it. And uh but this one, so, so somehow she, they decided she should be on the horse program. And the, the first thing she had to do was like really touch the horses. And that was super hard for her. But I figured if she could touch a horse, that would be the first step in maybe being able to touch people um, or at least trusting. So the scene with, uh, with uh, Olivia is, uh, she sort of has a breakdown moment because I'm trying to get her to, to pick up one of the horse's feet and she she emotionally and mentally breaks down and runs away and goes into the greenhouse that's kind of around the corner and starts like talking without making any sense whatsoever and just having a real trauma trauma triggered moment. And so we go into the greenhouse to see her and she's got her hands in the dirt and she's just kneading dirt like she's a cat and kind of talking crazy and uh eliza comes in with me and and brings her back and starts asking her what what did you have for lunch today olivia and so kind of started bringing her back to being really present again and she came back really fast and so i decided i don't know it kind of occurred to me because i'm one of my horses was there a horse that i had taught to lay down a long time ago um, when he was younger and more nervous, I, I would lay him down some and just hang out with him on the ground. And so it occurred to me that might be a good idea. If she can't touch him, at least he can get down to the ground and then she could be on the ground. And maybe that kind of grounding would ground her. So that a scene in the, in the book is me working with my horse, laying him down in the round pen and having Olivia come over and sit next to him. Uh, she she came around she came around eventually she came around to my horse was the horse she would only trust that that horse and she was the only horse that she would ever really touch but she did touch him and she did ride him um 
So, but she ended up leaving the ranch kind of early. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't get to, to work with her too long. But. Well, that's a good segue into my next question. You know, you've got so many success stories of beautiful things that happened to these people while they're on the ranch, but ranch, but, um, you also had to experience a lot of failure. What was that like having both sides of the coin and watching people fail and having to leave? Because if they left the ranch, they yeah. then usually broke parole and had to go back to prison. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And if they, you know, a lot of, I hate to say it, but many of them didn't um, turn themselves back in. So a number of them have overdosed and died that do get kicked off. Mm -hmm. um, so we have plenty of that. Uh, and I do write about those those times because you get really attached. Uh, I did, you know, and naively to some degree because I, I should have known, but I didn't know that, you know, just because they're they're doing well here on this ranch. Does it, and, and even then that was a, a bit of a lie because there was always some some scheme, some prison thing going on, some hidden drugs. Uh, there was always some scheme going on that I was clueless about most of the time. I, I kind of woke up to it as, as the years went by. I was a little bit more. But early on, I was shocked to, to hear it, some of the ways they were really behaving uh, and sneaking around and lying and getting caught. And, and I, yeah, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of failure, you know. And I almost... Uh, almost called the book. I don't think the publisher would have gone for it, but I almost called the book learning how to fail mm. because, um, because that's really the process of recovery and sobriety and becoming a, a citizen again, after you spent so much time incarcerated is that you're going to make mistakes. So what you have to learn is how to make mistakes and get back on your feet again. And then you have to learn that over and over and over again. So it's, learning how to fail is what really is the process it's not like being a winner it's like you're not going to be just a winner you're going to fail you have too much trauma all of this is true about all of us but especially people who have been incar incarcerated for so long mm. with all this trauma they're not going to be perfect uh, they're going to have to learn to make mistakes big or small and learn from them and get back up and that is the process so the book um has a lot of success stories, but I think it's real in the way that it deals with the fact that this is a population of people that really struggle and they'll struggle all the way through their lives. It's going to be the rest of their lives, uh, taking it one day, one day, one hour, whatever it is at a time, you know, at the ranch, they say, you know, just make it to, make it to your pillow. That's mm. what they used to say, like every day, just make it to your pillow. Um, and I've seen a lot of people that are out now that are doing really, really well. But but when when I get to sit down and have a real conversation with them, they're still struggling. You know, they're still working hard. It's a hard, hard work. Mm, yeah, and it it doesn't stop. You know, you you look at so many people in the the normal world and all the the people we see on the socials and everything striving to be these amazing people and have these great businesses and, and these guys that you've worked with literally just need to get through a day and yeah. to hold down a job in a restaurant yeah. is just such an amazing achievement and just to live a, what we would, you know, 
determine as a normal life for them is a massive massive achievement yeah and they are so proud and excited you know like like to have a normal life Mm. they just they are so happy to have a normal life what we take you know for granted and sometimes even complain about they're like yeah I'm working the job's great and I got an apartment and trying to get another car and like they are so excited about it you know it's a good perspective it's a good perspective Mm. and um they you actually had them involved in a cult starting competition was it a cult starting competition or just a starting competition oh um yeah pretty much root beer yeah it's root beer um so here my one of my hometowns nearby they do the the, there's a horse rescue and that's what it was yeah it was a horse rescue uh, facility and every year they have uh they get 10 of their horses and place them with 10 trainers and then they do a you know and we have 90 days or 100 days and then uh they you know they auction the horses off at the competition at the end of the 100 days um so I didn't really want to do it because I was busy, busy already with going to the ranch plus all my other clients. And but I wanted, if we're gonna do it, I wanted to do it with with the ranch. So by the time we did the competition, we had a lot of the ranch horses were doing really well. We were riding them with, you know, everybody was getting riding skills. They were getting their groundwork skills. They had their round pen skills. They were doing a little jumping. Um, they were, we had a galloping track around the ranch so they could gallop. Um, so they had some skills and I decided to go ahead and enter the competition, but for, for the residents at the ranch to be the main primary trainers. And, um, so, so it was a lot of like taking a horse that had been abandoned, also had some bad experiences, much like the residents at the ranch, and then try to bring it along and give it a second chance, give it a second life, second chance of life. So I, they got really into it and uh, they did 90% of the training. Um, but again, there's a little bit of failure in that story. Um, so I'm going to leave that for people to read about. Read but, in the book, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it, it is good. And are they still doing those type of competitions each year? Yeah, right. The, yes, it's they, they, they have. Just, well, this year they had to do it virtually, right? Um, they couldn't have a big crowd, but all the trainers, I, I didn't do one this year, but uh, I know a couple of trainers that did them this year and, and we didn't have, they didn't have the big competition because we couldn't gather. So, but they did it virtually and they videotaped everybody riding their horses. So yeah, it's a big fundraiser for them. And it's also a way for them to get their horses placed. Uh, yeah, it's homes. a great idea. I love the idea. Hopefully yeah. more people listening to this will think it's a good idea and do it more for rescues what a great idea and are the and at the ranch are they still doing that other than this year they no we haven't done one in a couple years um and i'm not even able to get over to the ranch during this time so Mm -hmm. uh because they well they kind of shut well you see there's a lot of people over there uh, and they they just kind of cut off all their going to lock down yeah they had to lock down because there's they live in dorm style uh, facilities over there so you have 12 15 men in a small dorm Mm. so they could not take the risk of covid coming in or that would have spread like crazy yeah and there'd be a lot of compromised immune systems in there too yeah 
So I don't know exactly, yeah. So I don't know. I think they're just holding steady. I hear from some people, you know, that one of the horses colic the other the other day, but I think we got got the vet in there. But I haven't been able to be there really since February. Mm. Yeah. A long time. And at the end of the book, um, I believe it's Tony who rides Luna. And it's Mm -hmm. um, it's you letting go. And yeah. allowing him to ride Luna against, you know, your head versus your heart and the trust of everything that you've put into them. And yeah. how is Luna now? So Luna, just a, maybe last summer, they decided to uh, retire her. Um, I think it was a good choice. Um, she, so that group of people got her started mm-hmm. and uh, and she was doing really well. Uh, and then I got a new, whole new influx of people. A couple of people still who were in the original group that started her stayed, but even when they left, so then I'm dealing with all these new people and Luna just really struggled uh, trusting people. She, she ended up trusting the core group of people in the book, but I got more and more nervous that she was really going to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And I was really more nervous that somebody was going to hurt her again. So I convinced them to retire her. She's living out on a ranch uh, um, with about four other horses, and she is being ridden out there. But they're they're not people from the prison. They're just horse people who are riding her now. So she doesn't have to go through all that change. It was just too much change for her. Yeah, and yeah, she's she's a one person kind of horse. Yeah, yeah. She was a big, beautiful paint with a uh, blue eyes and. Um, really athletic wow i'm so glad to hear that she's um she's doing well and what about with the turnover of horses at the ranch is the other than luna is the does the core group of horses stay the same um they got two new ones this year one of them probably one of them i think they had a was had an eye issue and then went blind with the other eye so they ended up having to put her down but it seems like every couple years they get two to three new horses and occasionally when they get a little older they'll uh you know find them a home like i found luna a home i've found a couple of them home so far as they get a little older and they're they're easy to handle and we can find new owners for them Mm -hmm. that's a good time to place them because in my opinion, anyhow, because I don't need them to just be getting old on that ranch. They they can get out of the ranch, get a little break from the 120 people. Yeah. Go to, go to just one horse owner or one family. So, but most of them are still there. But there's a few we've retired, a three we've retired with Luna included. And so every time we retire one, we pick up another one. And uh, a lot of a lot of times in the past, they didn't make good choices on what horses to, to, to take. But ne- since I've been around, we've been getting a little bit better and more specific about what horses we should take on, you know, because we, when it's a free horse and it's yeah. usually got <laughs> free some for a issues. reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and also it's trauma people choosing trauma horses, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a trauma bond, which is, um, which is the hardest thing to endure. You know, you learn a lot from it, but you you don't want to start that way when you're in so much trauma. Yeah, no, yeah. But they, they've got a good herd over there now, but they're always going to, they've always got so much to learn because like they're all, 
I'll tell you this, there's probably a hundred people a day call to that ranch from prison trying to get there. They have so much influx of people coming to that ranch. Not a hundred come, but at least a hundred calls a day trying to get, yeah. And so there's a lot of changeover because not everybody makes it. You know, you, you come to the ranch, it's hard work. They work way harder than they do in prison. And uh, so not everybody makes it. So there's a lot of changeover. So those horses have to deal with that kind of changeover. So it was always felt like my job to keep something steady for them, you know. Yeah. So I have they have their methodologies of training. They know, they know. Uh, and they, they're starting to pass it on. Like, I'm not there right now, but I got an email the other day from one of the people at the ranch asking me a question and then telling me what he was doing with the horse. And he was doing exactly what I would have done, oh. you know? So that was like really heartening to hear. That's perfect. That's yeah. when you know you've done the job. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, done the job well. And how many of the core group that you write of in the book are still at, at the ranch? No, Nobody. They're all, they're all gone. Wow. Yeah. Cause they've all either left under bad circumstances, overdosed or are out and doing well. So, and what yeah. percentage are doing well? What percent? About 50%. Hey, that's about. pretty good odds. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I do. I think so. Yeah. As I've learned over the years, I think it's really good odds. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And when people want to go to the ranch, are they um wanting the equine program or are they just wanting the ranch itself? They're coming for the ranch. They're coming to get out of prison and get onto this ranch. Um and when they are allowed to, the judge has to okay it. Um if they do well at the ranch, that shortens their prison term. So mm-hmm. if they do really well there, they can go back in and try to get their prison terms shortened. So there's a lot of motivation to come and a lot of motivation to do well. So they're coming to be on the ranch. The horses are, they don't even know that there are going to be horses on the ranch. And then when they first come in, most of them are just in shock to see a, a bunch of horses. Um, you know, it's we, we, you know, we have it in the afternoons on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We, call, we have a regular three hour working session out there and the early the new arrivals are on something called maintenance and they have to do like all maintenance around the farm and so these are people fresh out of prison watching us galloping around the track and Mm -hmm. so it does kind of motivate them they they never thought they'd ever ever be around horses and then they see us out there and they get really interested and after they're there for about six months they get to put their name on a list if they want to be on the horse program. And then people who know them better than I do get to choose whether they're, they should, they would be good candidates to be on the horse program or not. And so it sounds like, because, uh, you know, in the, in the global sense, jail is meant to reform people, which we all know 90% of the time it doesn't, but it sounds like this ranch is actually there to reform people um, to, to assist them back into society. Absolutely. Yep. This is a really unusual facility. And, uh, and you'll read about that in the book because it gets into a little detail about how the ranch functions, but it's absolutely about um, bringing people up, you know, bringing them up. Some of the worst of the worst is what the, one of the founders says, you know, we get the worst of the worst and it's about giving them the skills to be citizens again, you know, 
What a shame exactly. that jail doesn't do that, but um, we can't have everything. How many of these ranches are there in America? There's this is the there's this or it's an organization that has facilities in about seven other locations in the US. But this facility here in New Mexico is the only one that is not urban and it's the only one with horses. Wow. Um, so uh, therefore that makes sense that they really didn't know much about horses because they don't have experience with horses anywhere else but mm. here so um so yeah this is the only place that actually has a horse program that's kind of why i was in the situation i was when it started you know it's like they just didn't have the skills at all to know what to do with these horses yeah and it makes sense that they turned up and the horses were there so they yeah, yeah. like they decided to start a program it, it it started before yeah before they even got there and do you have, are you going to write another book? I am. I am. I'm so busy in my training season, uh, spring, summer, fall. I'm so busy. But I started on something um, before my book came out because I knew when the book came out, um, I just get so busy. And uh, so I have something started. And um, it's similar. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be all memoir. It's gonna start from a place of memoir and, and move more towards fiction because memoir is so, so intense to write, so restrictive. Um, I really want to like again. I I want to write to be in the, a big creative space. So I am. I'm. I'm writing another book, and I've really. It's similar. Similar. Similar topics. Um, but, I'm not going to go any further, but it's going to, I think I'm always going to have to write about horses. Mm. Uh, always write about marginalized people and just, uh, and just how circumstantially we can all help each other survive better. Um, so it's sort of similar. It's very similar, but different. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you have an idea in mind when you think you'll be done with that one? Oh no. Gosh, no. no. And this yeah. year has kind of thrown spanners in every works, haven't they, as well? So yeah. you may I'd say have... the best part of uh, writing a book is writing the book. Um, so I, I've now learned that. I, I've enjoyed being published. I've enjoyed doing some public stuff. Um, but the, when it was sitting down and, and writing this book out, that is the most rewarding thing. And so, like, I don't want to get in a hurry about getting through another book because I, I really like writing so much mm. that there's something about writing that brings you into a, the, into the present tense as much as horses bring you into the present tense. Writing kind of does that for me too. And it just makes me slow down and dwell and being very, very present. Um, so I don't, I don't like rushing through that. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say I blame you on that one. Stretch it out. Well, Ginger, um, how do we find you? I listened to the book. I'm a bit of an Audible fan because um, I'm, if I sit down with a written book, I could possibly fall asleep. And um, <laughs> so Audible is my best friend these days. I listen to it everywhere. But where can we also buy the um, the paperback version? Oh, it's uh, in most bookstores in the U.S. You can get it and also online. Just Google the book Ginger Gaffney Half Broke and it, I don't know how you guys do it, but locally the bookstores are carrying it. I think you guys can get it online through yeah, Amazon. Yeah. I, I know you can. Yeah. But if you but if you want to support your bookstores, you can get it there because it's everywhere. 
now right. you, you guys have it there same thing with audible um and then i have a website if you want to check out um some of my other writing and some of my uh, my horse work it's just my name it's ginger www.gingergaffney with two f's um dot com fantastic yeah. and i'll put the links in the show note as well and i'll pop a link to amazon on there for the book too and um but thank you for writing the book and thanks for everything you do for horses. I love your um your mix of um people you've trained with, but your insights that you have into horses and humans is beautiful and I enjoyed every second. I've listened to the book twice now and um I enjoyed it just as much the second time as I did the first. So wow. so thank you for telling us your story. It's an amazing one. Thank you Tracy. You know, you're you have really good insights as well. Uh because it sounds to me like you really understand the group of people I've been writing about. And I just really enjoyed all your questions and all your thoughtfulness around it. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. It's um, when uh, in reading your book, it re-inspires me and reignites me. And I think one day, you know, it's, it's something that I want to get back to. I'd love to be able to do something like that here in Australia and just link it in somewhere, you know, it's not the time for me now, but it's like, I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, yeah. So I really understand what, what it is. And, and I watched failure. I've seen suicides and, you know, there's people yeah. from that program and you keep in touch and, you know, a lot of them don't get out, but some of them do. And yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing and I really enjoyed it. So you just brought me back to a space in my life that I really enjoyed. So I've been a little bit re-inspired to put that on the bucket list as well, that one day yeah, I'll be good. back because it, 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 the, you know, it's a place where you really can feel whole. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, I, I, I feel for me that it'll never, it'll never just be about horse training anymore and riding, and that's always so passionate of mine. But it'll never just be that. I, I feel like that, that uh, horses are tied to our communities, and we can find ways to tie them even more. And to do some kind of community work with horses is, it's just the other side that we should be giving back as horse people to try to figure out a way to tie the thing that we know horses do for us tie that to the community somehow mm, yeah it's a beautiful thing well ginger thank you so much again for your time today thank you tracy i'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life this is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that 
boost the podcast up and basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend, tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.